Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Before we get started, here's a quick note from our sponsor. building analytics comparison guide, which was a collaboration between us at Nexus Labs and the team at Clockworks Analytics. It's used by industry leading facilities teams and service provider organizations to make the jump from building automation system alarms to prioritized and proactive maintenance using fall detection and diagnostic software. In the guide, we show how there are actually two kinds of fault detection diagnostic software, those that stop at the first D, detection, and those that go all the way to diagnostics. And this guide tells the story of the second D and why it's so important. So get the guide at the link in the show notes. This episode is a conversation with Brad White, president of SES Consulting, and Leo Glazer, manager of environmental sustainability at Concert Properties in Canada. The theme here is decarbonization from the trenches. Most pork property owners don't have a real detailed plan for decarbonizing their portfolios, despite widespread corporate commitments to do just that. So we talk about the steps in building a roadmap, how concert properties built theirs, how they make the business case, the role of smart building technology, and Brad even gets on a soapbox to send two messages out that I think a lot of us need to hear right now. These are lessons from the trenches. One quick announcement before we dive in. If you like this topic, this month's Nexus Pro member gathering will feature BXP's Ben Myers and will highlight their journey and give everyone a chance to fire questions at the man responsible for decarbonizing 50 million square feet. So join Nexus Pro now to get the invite. And without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Brad White and Leo Glazer. Hello, Leo and Brad. Welcome to the Nexus podcast. Great to have you guys on. Leo, let's start with you. Can you uh, introduce yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, James. Thanks for having me today. My name is Leo Glazer. I'm the manager for environmental sustainability at Concert Properties been with the organization for a bit over two years so my field is pretty much leading the ESG department at concert and that includes mostly everything that's environmental related to decarbonization implementing high efficiency and decarbonization projects in our buildings but also the social and the government side of the organization cool let's before we go over to Brad uh, can you give us a little background like what were you doing before concert uh, what's your sort of career educational background yeah, totally. Um, so I did my master's at UBC in clean energy engineering and resource management. And it's a while, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I kind of created a bit my own field, so a combination of both. Um, and while I was still a student at UBC, I started working for energy and water services and a yeah, very similar capacity as the energy analyst working on energy conservation projects uh, most of the time and analyzing data of campus buildings. And then I moved to Quadrial Property, Property Group in uh, 2017, also as an energy analyst and worked there for three and a half years. So I've been working in the commercial real estate work since uh, early 2017. So it's been <laughs> quite a number of years now. Got it. Got it. And can you give people a background on concert? What, ki- what types of buildings? How many of them? Where are they? Yeah, totally. So Concert only has a Canadian portfolio, but it spans, well, across Canada, but mainly in uh, Vancouver and in Toronto. 
So we're actually more known for being a real estate developer. Um, pretty much everyone in Vancouver knows concert properties for the quality of the condos we built. Um, pretty from from you know like market-based condos to very high ends. And um, so the properties I take care of, that's a total I think of 135, 137, is a mix of office, residential, and industrial portfolio. So 50, 51 buildings we count as our scope two and one, uh, one and two emissions. That's a mix of office and residential buildings, and the, the rest would be in, in scope three, which is um, industrial sites. Got it, got it. Okay, well, I'm excited to dig into all of that. Brad, can you jump in? What's Can you introduce yourself and give a little background on, on your firm? Sure, James, I, I'd be happy to. Um... So I'm uh, Brad White. I'm president of SES Consulting. Um, we're a firm. Uh, we're based in Vancouver, uh, Canada. We've got offices kind of throughout BC. Uh, and if, I guess I, I, up until the last couple of years, I would have said we're an energy efficiency engineering firm. Um, but increasingly, it's sort of energy, energy and carbon uh, consulting. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're about 20 people. Our focus is almost exclusively on it, on the existing building market. So everything from energy studies um, through to design, implementation, implementation, verification of energy efficiency and, and decarbonization projects. Um, I'm, my background is as a mechanical engineer. Most of our staff is mechanical engineers, um, but we also have a, sort of the softer side of, of efficiency and sustainability as well, where we do teaching, um, behavior change, things like that. Um, and so I've been doing this about, I guess, about 15 years now. Um, and But really in the last two or three years, uh, increasingly the, the conversation is less about, you know, how much money can we save and how much energy can we save to everyone wants to talk about carbon uh, and decarbonization, which is um, really aligned with, with our mission as a company. We're a certified B Corporation. Everyone we hire, we've always kind of been climate nerds. We we you know, we care about the environment, and sustainability. So the shift has been really really well aligned for us. Yeah, and I think all three of us then kind of started on the energy efficiency train, and and then decarbonization mm-hmm. happened, and it's like, well, finally, someone cares about this. We're just calling it a different <laughs> name, but we've been, you know, it's not exactly the same, and we'll unpack that, but. Uh, uh, that that was it was a relief for me is uh, like kind of watching this unfold over the last couple of years and it's like oh maybe the long sales cycle the long you know internal approval cycles maybe those are going to start to get shorter shorter nowadays um, well cool let's let's jump in um, I I think what I what I want to start with is is the concept of decarbonization in general before we get into like roadmaps. Maybe Leo, if you could start by just saying from, from mm-hmm. your organization, what does that shift mean to concert and going from energy efficiency, energy management to decarbonization? What, what is that shift? So I would say it really depends a bit on the region. In BC, we are fortunate to have a 95, 96% clean grid. Most of our electricity comes from, from hydro energy. And so it's it's pretty easy to you know swap out an old gas-fired boiler for an electric heat pump, because we well everything we replace with uh, an electrical source that is pretty much carbon neutral, right, or pretty close to carbon neutral. Uh, if we look into a different part of portfolio in Alberta, we have to be a bit more 
uh, mm -hmm. inventive in, in what we do. So it's more efficiency driven in, in other regions than it is here in BC. I always compare it to, you know, we, <laughs> we could pretty much just go into our buildings and throw out all old gas fired equipment and install baseboard heaters if they're electric. I mean, the efficiency is pretty low, but <laughs> you pretty much decarbonize the entire building, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So yeah, I, I would say it, it depends. Um, I mean, what we had to do in order to focus more on the decarbonation side uh, was really to uh, in, in increase the budgets for the type of projects, right? Because it's it's just more expensive. It's a fact that uh, if you install a heat pump, it costs more than a gas-fired boiler. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit a way in, in educating the organization and, and you know making making a change to not just look into the numbers, also look into what what does it do in the next 10, 15 years uh, regarding the, the the carbon footprint of the buildings. Totally. Brad, what is it? What does it meant? What does that transition meant for you guys as this consulting firm working with a bunch of different type of clients? What is that? What does that meant for you? Ah, uh, I mean, as you said, in one way, one way it's been kind of a relief because it's it, it, it's the projects we've always wanted to recommend, but uh, you know, historically it was so business case driven that yeah, you know, the clients you have a lot of clients, you know, two, three year paybacks is what they wanted. Um, you know, maybe we had some progressive clients that would take like up to a 10 year payback. Um, but with the shift to decarbonization now, it almost decouples from, from the business case because I mean, we run into cases all the time where like there's no payback, like your operation costs are going to yeah. be higher. Um, you're, you're, the thing you're getting is, is that carbon savings. Um, and so, that that's really liberating in a way because you just you end up having a completely different conversation now, uh, and then really you're just looking for the best path to low carbon, not necessarily one that meets a certain business case criteria, or you know a certain payback or, or anything like that. I mean the, the financial metrics are still important, but the lens like uh, funny I'm actually uh, starting to teach a course on this, um, but like we start looking at totally different metrics on um, either looking at carbon pricing. I mean, we have a carbon tax or carbon price in, in BC and, and throughout Canada, one that's set to escalate quite significantly. Well, you know, okay, well, let's factor that in. Uh, we work with organizations that have established internal carbon prices. So that's another factor. Or we can just look at, you know, on sort of a, a life cycle cost per ton. There's all sorts of different interesting ways you can look at these projects to get to the best, the best one. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a very different conversation. And then also trying to get at sort of for each owner, like what is their trigger? Like what's driving them to look at this? Is it corporate ESG target? Is it the need for cooling? I mean, this is a conversation we've been having, which kind of links the climate change adaptation to the climate change mitigation conversation. But, um, you know, two years ago, two summers ago we had an, an extreme weather event here where we had temperatures above you know 40 degrees celsius so it's over well over 100 degrees um fahrenheit like that that's not something we've ever experienced here before and we have a lot of buildings that don't have mechanical cooling i mean i'm sure leo will tell you about some of his mm -hmm. residential properties historically no cooling um and so now we're having that conversation i mean i've had more conversations about adding cooling in the last year than i had in the previous 15 years i was i was in this hmm. business and of course once we're talking about adding cooling now we're talking about a small incremental cost to make that chiller uh, an air source heat pump instead of you know just uh, straight cooling so it, it it's 
interesting how it links these things together, but you have to understand where your clients are coming from and what, because it's very easy to get budgets approved to add cooling. If, if you've got, hmm. you know, tenants who, you know, their, their, their suites are, you know, not habitable because it's so hot, uh, which is the situation we're in or workplaces that aren't, um, you know, they're outside of safe working limits. Um, then all of a sudden the money, the money to, uh, you know, add cooling to the building is just there. Like you don't have to sort of justify it the same way we've always had to justify efficiency projects or even standalone decarbonization projects. So, um, yeah, really interesting to work with organizations and kind of figuring out you know where they're at and, and what their pain points are that we can leverage to, to make these, these deep carbon reductions. And, and Leo, what is the trigger? I like that framing, Brad. Thank you. What is the trigger for you guys? Hmm. It's it's a bit of everything, I would say. I mean, we have strong corporate carbon reduction goals in place. And, you know, we, we know that we've come to a point where all the low-hanging fruits are, are pretty much completed, right? We have changed all our lighting to LED. We're at the end of these type of projects. So we have to look into something that really changes the carbon footprint in our buildings. And that to us can't be realized without switching switching fuel. So um, I would say, yes, it's, it's definitely a corporate goal. But on the other side, like, like Brad mentioned, I mean, uh, air conditioning will become more and more uh, relevant in our suites. Uh, we, we, we've had now a number of warmer summers than we had ever experienced in Vancouver before. And um, I, I have a great example, actually, because we piloted two heat pumps in a residential building at a small air source heat pump unit. And we... We measured the energy usage in those suites, but also the temperature. So during the heat wave, when we had uh, 42 degrees Celsius, uh, way over 100 Fahrenheit, right? We noticed that, so we, we measured in the suites with the air suites heat pump that the temperature was between 30 and 32. And in the units without the, the uh, air suites heat pump, it went up to 40 and 40, 45 even, right? Because they were Whoa. self-facing. So it was a significant uh, temperature difference because we weren't quite sure if the, the small heat pumps can handle the heat load in, in, in uh, these extreme temperatures, but it, it did. And, you know, the tenants were happy to have them. So I, I can see this becoming even even mandatory in the future, which will also make um, Brett's and my, my job easier to sell it to the executive teams, right? Who will mm -hmm. sign off on the projects if we if we have to install air conditioning in the future. Got it. And and what is your your organization's carbon target? So we currently are updating our carbon targets um, on our website. We still have the the old one, the um, eighty percent by twenty fifty. We have been looking into the science based targets. Um, we uh, so for our asset management team, it was important to develop a decarbonization roadmap before we announce any targets because mm. we don't want to be an organization that just announces a target but doesn't have an idea how to get there. We want to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row. We want to make sure that our uh, target is data-driven and data-based. And so that's why we worked with, with Brett together on uh, pretty much developing this, this roadmap. Got it. I have spoken a lot in public about how I haven't seen like barely any roadmaps, basically yeah. none. I think I read I a agree. year ago that I had seen none. And like at this point maybe one or two right and then i got to green build last week and i saw two canadian reits so i was very proud of of you canadians last week when i was at green build <laughs> they the, it was quadrille and it was another one that i can't remember i'll put it in the show notes um 
but they basically had a very detailed roadmap and that was what the session was about at Greenbuild and it was awesome. Um, so I'd love to talk about, maybe start with you, Brad. How do you think about with your clients getting them to where they've announced a target, they have no plan to get there, they're hoping to figure it out at some point. Where do you start with, with credit, kind of like creating that roadmap with them? Um, I mean, it's a good question. And I, you know, there, I, I wouldn't say there's a one size fits all approach um, for, uh, you know, there's so many factors that go into it. And I'll, I'll say from, from the get go, I don't know that hiring a consultant firm like us is the best way to start. Um, it can be, uh, and we, we can certainly help you get there. I think increasingly I do see that sort of that first step of work being done by a software platform, whether it's someone like Audet or, you know, there's a number of platforms out there now. And I think, I think ultimately that's probably um, how that initial step would be taken. Cause I mean, at, at, we're kind of doing the manual version of that. I mean, when we started working with, with concert and, and Leo a few years ago, I mean, we didn't, there, there weren't good platforms available at that mm -hmm. point. So really the initial, and it's funny cause it, we were doing energy audits and you know, kind of traditional energy audits and they were, they were funded by our utility and almost as an afterthought, we were including these low carbon options kind of at the bottom, almost the bottom of the executive summary. So we had all the usual energy efficiency measures. It was control stuff. It was mm -hmm. equipment upgrades. And then at the bottom, it'd be like, okay, here are your kind of zero carbon alternatives. And it's funny that that, that was, wasn't a piece that the utilities were funding. That was just something we kind of did because it, it was relatively simple to add on once you've kind of done all the work of an audit. Um, but it's it's that piece that actually turned into the roadmap that that has now I think and you know Leo could could confirm this better than I could but it's has kind of turned in to that zero carbon roadmap because at the time again it was very early in that conversation and and it wasn't sort of everyone's front of mind oh we need these options to hit a certain target it was like you know in, in conversations like yeah we're interested in, in low carbon can you just kind of let us know what that would look like um, sort of at a high level and so so we did. Um, as I said, I find it really interesting that piece that I don't want to say it was a throwaway, but it was in terms of the level of effort of the whole audit, that was like a few hours. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and it was the most important piece, I think, by far for, for, for concert and how they planned and, and approached, um, Got it. you know, meet, meeting their targets. So that's kind of how we did it. We were sort of in the buildings doing you know, a more traditional energy assessment and, and, um, and, and then, yeah, I, I sort of did this add on piece to look at, uh, you know, heat pump alternatives for, for mm -hmm. various equipment types. And then, um, okay. yeah, you guys really seized on that and, and it's, you know, turned into a plan and, you know, actual projects now, like we've got sort of have, you know, delivered <laughs> full projects at this point that, that kind of started with a, a one liner in a, in an energy study a few years ago, which is, which nice. I think is pretty cool. Before we get into concert, um, I want to circle back on the, the software piece. So we've had uh, Christopher from Mondet on the podcast before. Um, I've obviously written about how, you know, the energy spreadsheet must die. And like, we, we have to like get away from doing all that manually. Can you just provide sort of your summary of what software needs to do there? Yeah. Yeah, and in full disclosure, you know that we've got a, a relationship with Audette. Yeah. Audette was a yeah spinoff from from uh, within SES initially. It's it's you know obviously become its own thing now. But I, you know I was on the board for a while and stuff. So um, I you know in terms of what I think where the software needs to go um, is, is to really and, and so maybe to take a step back, 
the best opportunity for any building to make that switch to low carbon is when they're in there replacing equipment anyway. Like the end mm -hmm. of the equipment life cycle, it, like it's such a key leverage point in this whole journey to, to low carbon. Like it, it's like the most important thing. Cause like, if you miss that opportunity, if you miss that window, like it's 15 years probably before you're gonna get mm -hmm. another shot at it. And, and with targets in, you know, the 20, 30 40 50 range like we're now within the life like the life cycle of, of key equipment where you know we're expecting significant uh carbon reductions to be made so um so i in my mind the what the software needs to do is to understand that capital equipment like replacement cycle for any building so i mean ideally it's a building owner who's got a, a maintenance database and they know roughly how old equipment is and roughly when they would want to replace it. Um, and, and to link that in with a, a zero carbon plan to say, okay, well here, you know, this boiler will be this air source heat pump and this rooftop unit will be, you know, this rooftop unit with a heat pump and this furnace will be an air. So like as step one and and then like that's that's like the minimum because now you can see okay here's you can start to do the timeline to say okay this is when these major pieces of equipment will likely need to be replaced and you know and, and to see how big of a dent that's going to make in your your carbon budget because if you know how big the equipment is and you know how big how much the building produces in terms of carbon like you can you can ballpark it like you can get in the right the right order of magnitude anyway and and then and then start to see like where does that get you you know, if you know you've got you know twenty equipment replacements by twenty thirty five, and my target is fifty percent, like you can start to see, like, am I in the right range, or do I, like do I have to do more than just tackle these equipment replacements, or, or is that actually getting me way past my target? And hmm. I think software is really well suited to that because, like, that's all pieces of information that software can collect, and you put in some basic assumptions, and and it can start to like plot that plan out for you. Um, so and and then then you kind of have and then you can see your priority list. You know, okay, these pieces of equipment are my you know, biggest bang for my buck in terms of carbon reduction. And this other building hardly uses any gas. I'm not even going to worry about that one. And um, so I think if you get that full picture between sort of facility energy use, carbon production, um, like those you know scope scope one and two emissions for for each individual buildings, and you know what kind of equipment you're dealing with, and you know when it can be replaced, like that's step one. If you've got a handle on all that, then you're like, you're kind of halfway there. Got it. And yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The thing that's interesting to me there is, um, that's a, a lot of that work, right, is site level data being turned into site level plans, right? Um, I feel like where a lot of people start though is not at the site level and there's this gap, right? Where people are making like portfolio level targets, portfolio level plans, if you can call it that. And then there's a disconnect between like that and the actual device that needs to be replaced down at the ground, right? Do you guys feel that? You're absolutely right. I, I think you can still have a, a portfolio target because you will have stronger performing buildings and some of them may already electrify it so for example we have a couple of buildings in victoria that barely use any gas for some reason <laughs> it's it the way they were built was already you know having elect, electrified or electrified building systems in mind mm -hmm. uh, so their carbon footprint is extremely low are they extremely efficient i don't know 
Do I care that much anymore? Not really, right? They're not on my priority list anymore because their carbon footprint is so low. I think what needs to be done is in order to announce a, a sophisticated carbon target, you have to have the site level data. Mm-hmm. And I personally would start, and depending on where the organization is at, I would start collecting the utility bills and establishing a baseline. And I know that in, in many cases, small organizations or large organizations even haven't started that yet. So that was that was key for us. I mean, we had some data collected before I started with Consit in 2020, but we had a lot of gaps and we didn't have a energy baseline established. And we were trying to fill all the gaps from 2018 until, until now, right? So... Um, that took a lot of time and effort reaching out to utilities, making sure we get the invoices because we wanted to get the data short. And in order to get a sh- the data short, you need the invoices uh, as, as, a, as a proof, right? When you get audited. So that, that took quite some time. And then uh, second, I would say, uh, what just to piggyback on, on Brett here is to really align those identified projects with the equipment replacement schedule. And that when it comes really into you know, talking with the, the site level staff and your asset manager who oversee the, the buildings, who know how much is in the budget and how much the, uh, uh, you know, how much the building can pretty much afford, right? And so that's that's what we did. So we formed this ESG committee group of people from property management, from asset management, and we started meeting, I think at the beginning, bi-weekly. Uh, so we before we started even the the we called them decarbonization audits because we wanted to move away from elect, uh, energy efficiency. We really wanted to focus more on on, on decarbonization and, and decarbonization projects. So what we discussed with our consultants was um, with Brett, for example, that we created an in-house spreadsheet, a spreadsheet everyone at concert would would understand and has their metrics in there. Because I look more into carbon reduction or how much is it going to cost me to reduce one ton of carbon to kind of establish a bit um, uh, and an idea how much our average project costs, right? So, um, but our asset management group wanted to see that present values and, and other metrics, right? I, I had not previously included. So we created this master spreadsheet and that was shared with all our consultants across Canada. We, we engaged in this uh, process of, of decarbonization audits. And then after all these audits were completed, we pretty much copy these projects together and we had at this point I didn't know when these projects could be realized right because some were in the million dollar range others went a couple ten thousands completely all over the place depending on the assets uh, but we sat together with our property managers and the asset managers to really go through each building's um, equipment replacement schedule in each budget and I mean, it's it's still an ongoing process. We have aligned to all these projects and there's a couple of hundred in that spreadsheet now for all 55 properties that we have in our scope one and two um, emissions. And um, the interesting thing is really like uh, that, you know, obviously you have some years where you expect uh, multiple uh, systems to, to break down or uh, their schedule for replacement in, in those certain years. And uh, like, like also like Brad said, right, you, you cannot realize all these projects in one year, but having the knowledge and having all this data allows you to reallocate these projects through the different years. So you can say, like, well, well, maybe we have the ability to push the one boulder project out or the one RTU out to another year and do only these projects this year. So it gives you a lot of more flexibility. And one thing I also want to mention here is that I ran in so many, into so many boilers that broke down and 
you know, no one had the time to really look into an electric, an electric alternative, right? Because you need to replace your boiler. That could be during the shoulder season or even in winter when it breaks down. So you want to go in and make sure that your tenants are, have heat, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So in many cases, you just don't have the time to do a decompensation on it. The good thing in our case is now we, we know what to do. So it can happen anytime. We have the alternative. We have, we, we have an understanding, uh, you know, what, what heat pump size we need to get. Obviously, it would, would take some engineering work to design the project, but at least we're not blank. <laughs> we don't have to boil, replace boilers for boilers. We know what it will take and how much it will cost to replace it with a heat pump. Yeah, totally. So when you look at this list of several hundred projects can you talk about what what are the other inputs are there is it only npv f for financials are you looking at net operating income or are you looking at anything else like that and then how do you prioritize the project so how, besides like these things are scheduled to be replaced on this year or this mm -hmm. thing broke down last week how do you then prioritize and then get the budget for how do you pay for it uh the stuff that that wasn't planned before yeah so th there's a couple of things that uh, are key here so first we also look into funding and funding opportunities for certain projects whether that's here in bc or in ontario or in alberta um and then we look into financial savings. So do we reduce enough gas? Do we actually see an operational benefit in it? And in, in some cases, unfortunately, we, we don't, um, unless the efficiency of the uh, project in, in increases the building efficiency by so much that we actually you know, save, save a lot of energy overall. And that is reflected in the, the ongoing operational expense. Uh, in many cases, unfortunately, because electricity is still more expensive than gas, right? We, we don't really see uh, the savings there but uh, besides any financial aspect here I would say that the priority is really given to the buildings that uh, you know have a heating system coming up for, uh, for replacement um, because if, if, if they miss the one replacement right we're stuck with a boiler for the next 18 years again so it's yep. really really timing is key here and, and and I just talked with our asset managers about this and uh, you know because they asked me Hey, is, does it still matter? Like how carbon uh, inefficient a, a building is? Would you prioritize the building? And I, I would say yes, we still do. I mean, we would still focus on those high emitters, right? Because we will obviously want to reduce the the, the 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 carbon pollution as soon as we can. And but it wouldn't be a boiler replacement unless the boiler is 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 due, right? We would go in and see what else we can do to improve efficiency. But those bigger items, the heat pumps, RDUs, MUAs, everything that can be electrified, that's really just based on, on the equipment replacement schedule. Got it. Anything to add there, Brad? I, I was just going to say, like, I, I, I think that mindset like, is really key for an organization that like every, every time you replace an equipment like for like is a lost opportunity. I think if you can mm -hmm. kind of get to that cultural shift where – um, you're sort of appreciating that like that is your opportunity because I mean, yeah, even if the building's not, you know, quote unquote efficient, you should still do the, the decarbonization project if, if that's your only opportunity because you can do the efficiency after. But if you mm -hmm. put a new boiler in there, like it's going to be really hard to get the low carbon equipment after that because 
you know, who, who wants to replace a brand new boiler, right? So I think uh, like it, it, in some ways it's counterintuitive, but I, I think for an organization to actually be successful and make you know meaningful progress towards their goals, like on a big way, that uh, you gotta you gotta leverage those equipment replacement opportunities, um, almost yeah. irregardless of whether it is like your highest emitter or is otherwise a facility that should be prioritized, like. Like you just you kind of have to do it because if you don't you're not you're not going to get to the deep reductions that you're targeting. Like yeah, you could get twenty five, thirty, forty percent reduction maybe, but you're not going to get fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty percent reduction without those equipment replacements. Yeah, I've been on a, a little bit of a personal crusade to spread the term committed emissions around. So mm-hmm. I was at Verge, the Verge conference in San Jose a couple of weeks ago and I had, you know, I was speaking in a panel and I had a room full of a hundred people and I said, you know, raise your hand if anyone's heard, like who's heard of the term committed emissions. And I was planning on calling on the person to have them define it, but no one in the whole room raised their hand, including the panelists, the other panelists. And we were talking about ESG. We weren't talking specifically about decarbonization, but we were, you know, this is included in the ESG umbrella, right? Um, and not not a single person in the room, uh, unless they were being really shy, had heard the term committed emissions. And so I just feel like we have to like figure out how to spread this knowledge of equipment replacement timing is extremely, extremely important. Uh, yeah. I think everyone that's sort of in Leo's role is like already understands that. It's like the only lever we have, right? Uh, but mm. I, I think more and more people throughout the industry need to understand that term. What is the role, this is kind of my last sort of portfolio level question, and then I kind of want to zoom in, um, kind of get into the, the, the ground stories. Um, what is the role right now from your guys' perspective in carbon accounting specifically? So there's a lot of different software you know, features or entire software companies that are popping up around, hey, I know you have utility bills and you have meter data, but it'd be really be nice if you had accurate carbon data from that. How, how much do you guys think about that piece of this puzzle? Well, I mean, we we basically just follow the the, the, the national standards, right, and apply the national um, carbon emission factors to to the energy sources across the country. Uh, we we have we're using an energy management tool um, that does it automatically. Um, mm. And then in the end, uh, every year we get our data assured. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure how much carbon accounting tools would add to that, to be honest. Um, I think we have a pretty good understanding. We we monitor our carbon data uh, constantly, I would say, uh, making sure that we don't have any gaps. And um, our data is pretty accurate. And then half the year, or well, by mid-year, the carbon uh, the carbon factors change again, so you have to redo it and update all your, your, your baseline data again. And yeah, so I mean, it's <laughs> it, it keeps on changing your electrical grid system. Um, also, the, the carbon intensity of your uh, elect, uh, electrical systems also changed. So it's like, I, I think our data is pretty up-to-date or as up-to-date as it can be. And um, yeah, not, not sure. Brad, have you heard of any any tools that I, I mean, we kind of do it the same way. I mean, honestly, I think the biggest challenge and all that is like accurate utility data. And mm. like, if you had like, that's as you pointed to, I mean, ever, 
and you know a lot of the organizations we work with in fact i would say almost every organization we work with has some issue with getting accurate utility data for their whole portfolio like it's just a it's a challenge that it takes effort like you know you, you guys have gotten there but like that took you a lot of effort uh, yeah. And and a, a lot of organizations aren't aren't haven't finished putting in that effort yet, and and it's often you know the first thing we find when we come in to work with a portfolio, I'm like okay, well give us the data so we can start to benchmark this for you, and you know you they they either like uh, well here's some of it, <laughs> okay where where's the rest, um, or they give you stuff it's like are you sure this is right because this doesn't look right. Um, and, and then you you quickly realize that well no there I mean you look at enough energy data you kind of know what you expect to see and you can tell you know right, right away um, whether whether it's act, you know garbage or whether it's it's in yeah. the right ballpark and and there's a lot of garbage data out there so honestly to me the biggest challenge with the carbon accounting is getting the utility data right but if you've gotten the utility data right and accurate then i think the carbon piece kind of follows i mean yeah you have to mess around with emissions factors and but i mean that that's honestly not that big a challenge in my mind got it got it yeah i've been digging into this this category it seems like people are improving upon at least in the u.s we have emissions factors that are couple years old to several years old and they're not necessarily always specific to your grid and then a lot of times they're annual right so they're not necessarily matching up with the time you're actually using power um, so you have you know technologies that are popping up and saying well if you don't have hourly meter data then we'll estimate it for you right. and then we can give you a lot more accurate carbon data from that yeah. so and that's interesting really a space it's really a function of like what your grid looks like too. I mean, here in BC, like it's not anywhere nearly that complicated. It's like they turn the dam on, they turn the dam off <laughs> for the power. Like it's it's pretty consistent. But yeah, there's obviously other jurisdictions where yeah you're turning up natural gas plants at certain times, and you've got mm -hmm. that with with you know other sources. And then I I can understand that being a bigger challenge in 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 some markets for sure. Totally. Let's pause here for one more quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the show. Longtime listeners will remember Brainbox AI from way back on episode eight of the podcast. In that episode, we unpacked how Brainbox allows you to add AI, specifically reinforcement learning, to your existing HVAC control system, turning it into a predictive brain that learns precisely how to use less energy and optimize comfort in all building zones at all times. With BrainBox, you can reduce your carbon footprint, lower energy bills, and increase equipment life. Learn more by checking out the Westcliff Shopping Center success story at the link in the show notes. Let's, um, let's dive into a couple different details of these projects. One is, I'd, I'd love to hear, maybe start with you, Brad, if you look across your clients, the types of technologies that are vital to making the roadmap happen right so we've talked about heat pumps maybe we can just gloss over that a little bit obviously we need to electrify loads that were not electrified but what sort of smart building technologies or other technologies are you seeing as vital to this process okay i've got a few i've got a couple soapboxes to stand on on this topic so please step uh, up so the I'll say, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sort of preface by say, I think like, you know, we say like, yeah, put in a heat pump, like 
as if it is that simple. And you know, you you get some cases where it is, like you get rooftop units. Sure, that that's pretty easy. Um, but like design, if we're talking about a central plant, which is you know a big boiler plant, or even like a central domestic hot water plant for some of these large buildings, like there there is a lot of work into figuring out exactly what that replacement heat pump should look like. Hmm. Um, and I'll say the biggest thing c- comes down to like equipment sizing. And this does tie into smart buildings in a second, I'll, because um, it, like as we are, a, a, and as Leo alluded to, like heat pumps are expensive. Like I, I actually went to the effort one time of kind of doing a chart. And I think it was like dollars per BTU. Uh, and it had like kind of boiler, standard boiler systems, like high efficiency boiler systems, and then like heat pump systems. Okay. The heat pump costs are an order of magnitude more per BTU than a conventional gas boiler. Um, and, and, it, and it's really linear. Like it's just like you, you know, it, you can buy, you know, you, you can buy a million BTU hour per hour boiler. You can buy one and a half million uh like B2 per hour boiler and you're not paying that much more. And the install cost is kind of the same. Like the incremental cost of more gas capacity in a building, like for heating is not very high. It's not like for electrified systems, especially if we're talking heat pumps, it's, it's not that way at all. Like it's very linear. Like you want more capacity. It's going to be more expensive. You want twice as much capacity. It's going to be almost twice as expensive. Hmm. Um, both from like equipment cost point of view, install costs, you're kind of, you're bringing up electrical capacity. Like there's just, it's, you know, I think you, you, there's some efficiencies of scale, but not the way there is with gas systems. So, you know, and and the habit of, of of engineers is to be conservative, right? Like that's, Hmm. you know, interesting. One thing we're known of. So you oversize, you know, one way you're conservative is you oversize the equipment. You have these generous safety factors that you apply. Even if you go through the effort of properly sizing a, a piece of equipment, you usually tack on a bit of a safety factor or you buy a second boiler for redundancy and you put that in and you call it a day and you're left with way more boiler capacity than you actually need. Owners can't afford to do that when they electrify. We, you just can't afford the same level of redundancy and like oversized equipment in my, in my opinion, like that is going to make the journey to electrification and decarbonization so much slower. If you're expecting that same, that same level of, of sort of resilience and and safety in, in, in your designs. So the way you get around that is, um, especially if we're talking about retrofits, um, let's use the data, like and this is something hardly any engineer does when they're designing a piece of equipment. Like you've got, we've got handbooks and we've got models, but in an existing building, we should be using the data. Uh, and this is where the smart building systems come in because they can provide all of that data. Um, and, and what we have found when we've started looking at the data is really interesting. You find out that a lot of the, the traditional rules of thumb and models are like totally wrong. Um, yeah, I'd like to give this example from the domestic hot water systems. Um, so we actually, um, we did, we decar- decarbonized um, a, a domestic hot water system, one of Leo build, Leo's buildings recently. So we did, and it's a big, you know, 100 and I forget how many suites are in there, 100, almost 200 suites. So it's a, it's a good sized building. Um, so we put a meter on there to, to actually measure the domestic hot water usage. 
Um, and the profile, the usage profile was completely different from what the handbooks will tell you is kind of a standard domestic hot water profile in a multi-unit residential building. They'll say, hmm. you know, morning peak, low during the day, evening peak, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Of course, now we're taking um, data. This was actually still kind of in the middle of COVID when we were doing this, um, but it's, it actually honestly hasn't changed that much since. Um, that we saw kind of, you know, small morning peak, high load consistent throughout the day, another evening peak. Um, hmm. But when we're doing heat pumps, like that really matters because uh, with, I mean, not to get too much into the technical side of things, but like the heat pump systems have a lot fewer BTUs. So you rely on more storage and you're, you kind of rely on these downtimes to recharge the system. Well, knowing that the building's at a pretty high constant load all day really affects how much storage and and you know the whole design of the system um hmm. so i'd say without that data we would have designed a totally different system um and, and one that that wouldn't have served the needs of the building uh, quite as well and, and and just interesting that building before we did the project it had two six hundred thousand btu boilers for domestic hot water we ended up doing a hybrid system, um, and this is kind of another story, but we had, we had to run on the boilers. We had boilers and heat pumps kind of together. Um, but uh, but we for a while, we had to run on just the boilers, and we had two 200,000 BTU boilers, so one-third the size. That was enough for the building. Um, <laughs> so the, the old system was three times oversized um from what they actually needed and this was during a period when high with higher than normal use because there's just so many more people at home now during the day in the building um and then we've got you know same story i could tell you on the heating systems like i you know the old saying goes like all models are wrong some models are useful um in my opinion especially with existing buildings like forget about models like let's use the data like let's leverage the BAS infrastructure. And I think this is a way that we haven't traditionally thought of these smart building systems. They're often justified and for building operations or for energy mm -hmm. use or occupant comfort. So I'm saying now, like what I'm telling clients and sort of, yeah, one, one of the soapboxes I'm on is there's another use case for, for smart building systems and for BAS. And it is as like critical input data for designing low carbon systems for your building that if you don't have that data, you are not going to design your systems properly. They will probably be oversized and a lot more expensive than, than they need to be compared to as if you had uh, good data to design on. Um, yeah. So Makes I think sense. that's where smart building, and, and then not even to get into the operation of these systems, but again, to, to use the example of this residential, I mean, they had before they had two gas boilers. I mean, you, you could run that whole system off an Aquastat, but now, now we've got, 10 heat pumps, an electric heater, two boilers, bunch of storage tanks. They're all connected and we've got mixing valves and it's a lot more sophisticated system. So we just, we need a lot more BAS infrastructure to operate these low carbon systems compared to sort of conventional uh, natural gas systems. Uh, they're just, they're more complicated. And so you need, you need that smart building infrastructure to effectively operate them. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. So you're you're needing more more controls, more sensor, more actuator, more 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 controllers uh, than you had before. It sounds like also there's a need for analyzing the data itself, right? So some sort of analytics layer is helpful. Leo, how much of your sort of decarbonization roadmap is sort of intertwined with a technology roadmap, if that exists? 
It, it absolutely is. I mean, we're currently piloting three smart building systems and you know buildings. Uh, they're all three offices. Uh, we we just wanted to see what we can do and uh, how much we can improve the efficiency in those buildings. And we we chose our two. Um, corporate office buildings and we chose another building we have in the portfolio that's already very efficient just because the team wanted to see what if we throw a smart building system into an already efficient building can we still improve the building even further or what else do we get out from from this technology like what other information is there that's possibly or potentially of value and uh, so back in the day before these smart building systems became more and more popular where it's more it was more like uh driven by young young engineers going through the weather data and going through the BS data and hoping to find out why uh, Jello 1 fires up in the middle of the night. and uh, So it was really interesting after they cleaned up the data and really dug into all the little details, we saw an average improvement of 20% in energy efficiency across office buildings. So that, that tells you, and that changes the conversation again to efficiency, right? <laughs> from mm-hmm. from decarbonization, yeah. which is, is AI amazing. machine learning is better than a skilled engineer, <laughs> is what you're saying. Probably. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. I've, I've, we'll see. I mean, like now yeah. AI systems are I, currently, I, I think, it. at 15%. So <laughs> let's see if they're as good as the engineers. But <laughs> um, yeah, so far the system's been running since uh, February in one building, and I think we're currently seeing a 15% gas use decrease. So, which is so you're talking crazy. about, when you say smart building system, you're talking about so, uh, sort of an advanced control layer, yeah. right? It's it's like a brain that sits on top of the BS system. Got it. And pretty much takes takes over, um, and, and, you know, gets has access to seven day weather data, and potentially if, if you have occupancy sensors in the building, it utilizes whatever information it can get, right, to to run the building as efficiently as possible. Um, so the plan is, um, and unfortunately, a lot of our residential buildings don't have a BAS system, or at least not a sophisticated BAS system that could potentially be controlled by a smart building AI system in the end. So our strategy currently is to, um, to, to, to install these BS systems in those buildings that, that don't have it yet. And then for the other buildings that already have a BS system to uh, look into some sort of AI technology to have that sitting on top of the BS system to you know, really adjust the buildings and, and run them as efficiently as possible and um, also improve ten, ten comfort in the building. So. If I put my real estate hat on for a second, which I don't wear very often because I'm an engineer, uh, but um, if I sort of replay back this conversation and I were to tell this to, you know, a property manager or an asset manager, we've talked about not having as much, not having a very good payback. We've talked about electrification costing more. And now we're talking about all this technology that we didn't have before in certain cases that we have to add on now because the systems are more sophisticated. How are you making that business case for all of this? <laughs> yeah, that's the challenging part. Uh, with with the AI technology, it's pretty simple because your paybacks are usually pretty good, right? Like the installation or the, the, the upfront costs are not extremely high. So usually your asset managers feel more comfortable. <laughs> And then there is potential to access funding um, 
and you know, from various sources that you know it's also always a great great incentive for for the team to agree to a project that's a bit you know higher in the in the upfront cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say you mean like local incentives and local local incentives or like even federal incentives. Um, those those type of projects are still considered to be pilots. So sometimes you're if you're lucky, you can get access to to those innovation funds as well mm-hmm. that cover for it. And um, but either way, your payback is usually pretty short, right? Because you expect operational savings, and once the system is up and running, there's not a huge ongoing fee associated with it. There's some software updates, but that's pretty much it. So once the system is up and running, then you really, you know, you you, you see the savings in the data, and um, after two, maybe three years, it, it pays for itself. So those those type of projects are usually pretty pretty simple. It gets more complicated to sell a, a heat pump project where the incremental cost is, you know, three times as high <laughs> as as the uh, initially budgeted uh, cost for a heat pump or uh, sorry a boiler replacement or a, a standard RTU. And uh, one one thing we noticed was, and that was part of our decarbonization audit exercise, we, we asked Brad and his team and the other consultants who worked on this to uh, really show us like how much would the project cost us if we if we just went for the like for like replacement or you know switch out an old boiler for a high efficiency condensing boiler, and then option B would be a heat pump combination like a hybrid between boilers and heat pumps, and option C would be then the all electric. We noticed that option B in most cases gets us to the you know seventy eighty percent carbon reduction. Uh, so for the the case uh, we've been working with Brad on in in at the, the the residential building where we just retrofitted the domestic hot water system, I think the the overall building emissions and the gas usage went down by four is expected to go down by fifty percent. We have had some other heat pump and and um, backup boiler projects where we could even save. Or depending on if there's other equipment um, that uses gas in the building or not. Um, but where I'm going with this is that you know if you want to go all electric, we see that those last thirty or twenty percent um, cost you almost as much as as, as those first seventy percent, seventy eighty percent, right? So we've kind of like internally agreed to let's not look into these all electric projects because we can't really justify it right because like a lot of these costs are recoverable so they have to be passed on to the tenants in, in some form um, depending on how these costs are, uh, are handled with the building budgets but anyways when we look into these uh, you know hybrid options the costs I mean Brad and correct me if I'm wrong we, we have seen positive paybacks if we consider life cycle costing and increased carbon tax right so that was the first yeah. time we ran the analysis and we got positive net present values uh, due to the carbon tax and inflation and gas prices too and those are the numbers here asset managers want to see too right I mean they, they do agree yes of course we have carbon targets in place as an organization we need to get there but we also want to make sure that the, you know the, the numbers add up in the end yeah and I think you know, to add to that, I think, you know, that that is that's consistent with the conversation, you know, we have with, you know, other clients as well is to find like, you know, let's, let's find the best path to low carbon, like, let's find those most effective, cost effective tons to save. 
Um, and sometimes, yeah, that's going to cost you, you know, you do even end up slightly negative on, on the net present values sometimes. Um, but you know, if that's your best option, then, you know, okay, that that's our best option. And I'd say that really also when like the commitment, the organization's commitment to their carbon targets plays a role too. Like if they are ironclad committed to those targets, then, then you can have a very different conversation than if it's a little bit you know, wishy-washy and they're not some organizations, again, the ones that don't have that solid roadmap, like, and haven't done the work to get to the building level are still kind of shocked sometimes when they see what, what it actually means on a project by project basis. And I found that even, even though they have the target, they're not, they're not quite comfortable yet, you know, taking the action and and saying, okay, we're going to do the heat pump instead of the, the boiler. So, um, I think the organization to get there, there really has to be that commitment to the roadmap and to to the targets, almost as a prerequisite to having the rest of the conversations. Because if they're not there yet, it's going to be really hard. Because I mean, these are still new projects. Like things things come up, things go wrong. I mean, you know, Leo and I can tell you, a, you know, a dozen <laughs> stories from this last project where, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I would say the commitment to that project, like. You know, if it wasn't there, it would have been easy at some points to say, "Nah, okay, this is too much. We're gonna, we're gonna bail and and do the safe thing here." So, um, and I guess the only other thing that's coming into some of our conversations, on top of kind of these internal targets that are driven by you know ESG programs, is, um, it's, yeah, I know New York has local uh, local uh, ordinance around carbon targets. Vancouver has one now as well. Um, for a certain class of large buildings, um, we call them the carbon pollution limits. It's you know it's so many tons per square foot, um, and so now clients are actually looking at that. And I, you know, since that was passed, having a lot more conversations, even with sort of clients who haven't been historically very sustainability minded, they're like, okay, what what does this mean? Will this building meet those limits? If not. You know, what do I need to do to get there? And that's kind of entering the conversation now when we're talking about boiler replacements or hmm. you know other gas equipment replacements. It's like, okay, do I? Is this going to be a problem for me? And if it is, I may make a different choice. Which I mean, honestly, is exactly what the the ordinances are meant to do. So it's yeah. in that way, it's being successful. But so we're starting to see the the regulations come into into play now. Um, in addition to, I mean, here we've kind of got, you know, it's almost the trifecta. You've got sort of the, you know, corporate sustainability and corporate, you know, um, corporations wanting to sort of, you know, do the right thing because, you know, their image is on the line. You've, we've got carbon pricing signals and now regulations on sort of the other end saying, you know, this is a hard limit now uh, that you can't exceed. So the combination of those things, I think, has really been what, at least, you know, here has has kind of moved, moved the market for us. and it is working its way into the conversations that we're having when we're planning projects. Got it. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Yeah. And I'm hearing that from a bunch of different cities right now. So Brad, you said you had multiple soapbox items to, to bring up. Do you have anything else you want to, you want to stand on the soapbox for? Well, okay. Uh, it's a lot, you know, it's along the same lines actually as, as the smart building. Um, you know, it's very much in, in sort of the smart building realm, but um, and, and interesting to see how how Leo and concerts kind of tackling it. Um, but and, and you you know you heard Leo say, well, a lot of our residential systems don't have, or a lot of residential buildings don't have much of a building automation system. They don't have much for smart building systems. But as soon as you decide to put in a low carbon system, 
if it's a central system, um, you are going to need that building automation system. And I think there's, you know, the commercial sector, I mean, we've been dealing with recommissioning and retro commissioning and ongoing commissioning. We've been having those conversations for 15 years. I'd say the commercial sector understands that well, but I think we, we're going, our industry is going to have a whole new challenge where we have all of these building owners who have not had sophisticated mm -hmm. building automation before all of a sudden are going to be in possession of them. Uh, and, and we're going to have this conversation all over again, you know, 20 years after we had it the first time. Yeah, with new technology, with new tools, but I think that's something we need, we need to really be ready for. Um, because I mean, I even saw it again in this, this project that we did with Leo and even in the commissioning of it, um, yeah, the contractor didn't understand what this, this system was meant to do. I, I had to explain several times that, no, no, we don't want to use the boiler. We want to use the heat pumps. That is the whole point of this project. The boilers are backup. Um, and to have to explain, because people just aren't used to it. Contractors aren't used to it. Um, you know, they didn't understand that this was a carbon reduction project um, or, or how this system was intended to operate. And that was good feedback for us as the designers. And, and um, you know, now that would be probably the first thing I would do in a project startup meeting is sit them down and explain like the design intent and the functional objective of the building and not just assume that, you know, yeah, they'll see the heat pumps and they'll, they'll know what's going on. I mean, even with the sequence of operations, like, we, you know, I had to go back and sort of walk them through line by line. Here's how we want it to work, even though it was a relatively simple sequence, just like it, it was so different from what they were used to doing um, and, and that it was just it was hard to get it to work the way we wanted. And for a long time, it was like the boilers were running 24 seven and like we you know, as the design engineer had to literally read the, the, the code line by line to figure out where it wasn't right, point that out to the programmer so that they could go fix it. Like it, it was a painful commissioning process um, that um, we had, and it would have been honestly kind of easy to say, yep, everything is done. Go through your commissioning checklist, check it off, leave them with a system that is maybe getting 10% of the carbon reduction that, that it had the potential to get to because of, you know, a few lines of code being wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine what that means for persistence and like how on it now, you know, the operators are going to have to be for the life of this system to prevent that sort of thing from happening. And we've seen it for years in recommissioning and ongoing commissioning, but I would say the stakes are higher now. Because yeah. virtually every one of these hybrid systems that we've worked on, and we've worked on a lot that we haven't designed, we get called in to do recommissioning projects. Nine times out of ten, the boiler is running and the heat pump is off, or the heat pump is barely doing anything. It's like it's tripped out. It's like, and no, like nobody knows. The operator can't be bothered with it because they see it as this you know, high maintenance piece of equipment. The boiler satisfies the tenants, so, and they know how a boiler works. They're comfortable with that. But meanwhile, the owner who has spent a lot of money on these low carbon systems isn't getting the value out of it. Um, and so this is going to be, I mean, it is a problem already. And I can only imagine, you know, the scale of, of the problem as we go forward and start to roll out, you know, start to decarbonize on a large scale. And this is where I've kind of thought that the, the conversation that, you know, a lot of the conversations focused on, okay, how do you find... How you prioritize the projects? How do you do the projects? Let's find a heat pump, mm -hmm. put in a heat pump. 
And I'm kind of like, well, yes, like that's important, but let's not underestimate the challenge in front of us from what these heat pump systems are in because um, keeping those systems working uh, and, and delivering on the carbon reduction is, is going to be an ongoing challenge uh, that, that our industry is going to have to tackle and, and have to take really seriously because I, I've already seen a bunch of these white elephants that, you know, a bunch of money spent on a, on a project that's not delivering you know, the carbon reduction that, that it was supposed to. And I think, you know, that also creates a bad reputation. People say, well, I spent all this money. I'm not getting the value out of it. Why would I keep spending money on this? That could kind of derail the whole car decarbonization challenge. So anyway, I think our industry needs to take that really seriously and, and get out in front of it. And, and that's a challenge from, you know, starts with the consultants, but goes through, you know, the contractors and the operations teams, Again, nothing different than the conversation we've been having in the commercial real estate side for forever, but mm -hmm. we're going to have to keep having that conversation and, and, you know, bring it kind of into the, into the 2020s I, with us because it's, it's going to be there. I'd say it's a huge obstacle though, because not, we've had been having this conversation. I mean, I, I spent a lot of my career so far having that conversation, which is it's important that you commission your control system and then you also probably want analytics and monitoring also, right? That was, you know, a huge part of my career so far. Um, but not everyone has taken that to heart. Not everyone has listened to that message. Not everyone has implemented that message. And so I guess it's, yeah, it's a big obstacle for then taking, taking that and expanding the number of buildings that now have more sophisticated systems, now have control systems, now need those control systems to perform. Yeah, I, I totally, I'm totally with you. It's a great, great lesson. Yeah. Now, I mean, the, there's opportunity there too. And I think this is where our industry yeah. needs to, uh, you know, understand this push for decarbonization and, and understand that, it, you know, this isn't just about heat pump manufacturers selling more heat pumps. It's about everyone in the smart building industry upping their game. And, and you know, there, there's a big opportunity here to sell our services to, to make, you know, make the low carbon building work. Uh, and I think we, we can't undervalue our role and, 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 but understand that, you know, these conversations are, are taking place around carbon and, and that that is a driver now for, for investment in buildings. And, you know, increasingly, I know, you know, as part of the you know, Inflation Reduction Act in, in, in the US and Canada's looking at similar legislation here, like there's a lot of money going into low carbon systems. Um, and that, you know, I think the smart building industry's role is to make them work right. Exactly. Which is why we're having this conversation. Yeah. So <laughs> let's end, Leo, I wanted to, so back to the fact that you guys are ahead of the game in terms of creating a plan Mm -hmm. creating a roadmap that actually has real actions in it. <laughs> um, can you give, let's just close off with some tips that you might have around other, like just others that are behind you on that journey to get to that sort of concrete plan. What tips do you have for them? Yeah. So my tips would be to focus first on uh, getting data, right? Like before you start any uh, carbon commitments, targets, or even looking into projects, you need to have a solid baseline. And uh, so that that allows you to you know make any assumptions where your carbon target could be could be at. And so what I've seen in the industry, and uh, that worries me too. <laughs> we talked about this at the beginning that most of these targets, whether it's fifty percent by twenty thirty or carbon neutral by twenty fifty, um, they're purely based on 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 an assumption or organization signing up for the science based target initiative and. 
I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Concert is one of the organizations that, like, that's uh, too scary for us. We do not want to announce a target and, uh, you know, by 2028, uh, we reduced our carbon by 10% or it just didn't work. So what I highly recommend is um, looking into every building and uh, either that's with a consultant or with the on-site staff and uh, checking the uh, equipment replacement schedules. And I would put a list together of those buildings uh, that are coming up in the next few years. And uh, I would focus my decarbonization roadmap on those buildings because like we said at the beginning, if you miss uh, a boiler system or a heat pump or a rooftop unit or anything now, then you're going to be stuck with the old system again for the next 15 to 20 years. And uh, so with, with that data, uh, I would just develop this roadmap and come up with an estimate of what is a, a, a real number that can be achieved in the next seven, eight years. And uh, without uh, overpromising anything, I would, uh, I would also discuss that with the asset management team if they feel comfortable uh, implementing these projects. Because like our senior management team, although we have those numbers and we have the costs and we have the carbon reduction predictions based on the consultants' analyses, we're still hesitant announcing a target publicly because a lot of these projects are still in, in, in very early stages and a lot of them are pilots. Uh, even our smart building project is, is still a pilot, right? It has not really been tested in, in here in, in Vancouver, at least, or along along the West Coast. So we don't really know if the predicted uh, you know carbon savings are 15%, 20% or less. So we'll probably wait a couple of more years before we make an announcement just to get more data and more information. And I think that's key. I think everyone should collect data as much as they can and... Uh, then also like share the, the outcomes of each project because uh, the project we're currently working with Brad on will be an exciting one because we have the exact same building right next to that one so it could be a carbon copy of the project if it turns out to be as uh, you know efficient and uh, the carbon reduction um, holds what it promises then this project could potentially be implemented across our BC portfolio uh, at all sites that have a similar system. So I think you know it will be a lesson learned. I think we have to share a lot of information in that field because a lot of the heat pump technology or the way we're currently installing it with the backup uh, boilers is, is still new to, to many landlords and the property owners, right? So I think the more we share from our experience, the, the better or the easier it will be for others to make a similar decision. Totally. Let's close out with some what I call carve-outs. Um, any book or podcast or you know any other type of media really that has had a major impact on you lately start with you brad ah, i'm glad i'm glad there's <laughs> a heads up for that question <laughs> um yeah, I'm a, I'm a, i've got i've got young kids so i don't have much time to read uh but I, I i do listen to a lot of podcasts and uh i would say lately uh the one that's had the most impact in my thinking is it's and yeah, it's one I'm sure a lot of people have heard of is um, Malcolm Gladwell's Re Revisionist History uh, podcast. But I just, what I like about it, it not I mean, the content is, is, is often fascinating, but just the way it just takes a total different perspective on something that either you've never really thought of in depth before or you've already kind of thought of one way and just kind of flip the way you look at something hmm. 
um, I, I, you know, I try to, I try to keep that in mind for, for my work because, um, you know, I think often there's, there's interesting answers when you just you know, look at a problem from a, a different perspective. So yeah, that's, that's one I've been enjoying because it just always is kind of a challenges your expectations and yeah, makes, makes you think. Brilliant. I remember I listened to the first couple episodes, but, uh, haven't listened to it in a few years. Yeah. Maybe I'll circle back it's to good. it. Good fellow, fellow Canadian. There you go. <laughs> How about you, Leo? Expat, but... Uh, so I would say I've been reading a lot of frameworks lately. Um, I presented our decarbonization roadmap at BuildX um, earlier this year, and uh, I can't remember the, the context here, but uh, we, we, we started discussing different ESG frameworks, and so it kind of like triggered a whole conversation around our own framework, whether that's still up-to-date or not up-to-date. So I started reading a lot of frameworks that are currently out there from international organizations pretty much all over the world and um yeah that <laughs> really helped me to understand what what others are doing in the field and um yeah what, what other what, what opportunities are out there uh regarding podcasts i do like listening to the economists uh particularly the topics that are on the, the energy market the energy crisis in europe <laughs> i think hmm. there's a, there's a lot we can learn here in in north america too i mean we're less affected luckily uh, than the European market, but um, it's also kind of changed changed my way of thinking of how we how we use energy and how easily you know uh, prices for gas or electricity can decrease <laughs> rapidly. Totally. Back to the frameworks. What what are the top one or two frameworks that you if you've you've dug into this topic? Where would, where should people start? Oh, so um, what I noticed is that these frameworks are pretty much all over the place. <laughs> yeah, there's, <laughs> okay. there's no real guidance like what you have to include in your framework or what, sh what, what or, or if it should be a combination of a, a issue report and a framework, if it is a document that's 60 pages long or a policy that's three pages long, which is great, right? There's <laughs> That that also makes me wonder, like, how much do we actually know about these things, right? If there's no no consistency even in how we develop our frameworks. I'm pretty sure so, we're all just making this up as we go along. Probably, <laughs> and you, you can also tell by like how often these frameworks are being being changed. So, um, well, so, so so we were back at the, the, the drawing board again at concert too to redesign our framework. I mean, we had a 2019 version uploaded to our. Uh, website it was, was 64 pages long or so <laughs> uh, we noticed that's might not be the easiest document we can share with the organization because who reads 64 pages right so if we could get right. that down to five pages maybe that, <laughs> that would be key well we'll see how got that it. goes got it all right well thanks you too this has been super insightful i like how practical down to earth it is from real experience so thank you for sharing cool that's thank yeah you. that was fun yeah it's awesome All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.